is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 34, working from home still for so many, nothing going on this week. I'm, of course, kidding. It was a huge week. We had the U.S. election, a Fed meeting, a U.S. jobs report, and COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations rising around the globe. If there was a theme, it's that it's all connected, and our conversations this week were about that connectivity, touching on the vote, the virus, and the visibility and virility of our economy. With that in mind, coming up this hour... Anxious times here as we see those case counts go up and the hospitalizations go up as well. On the coronavirus, Dr. Penny Wheeler, president and CEO at Alina Health on the Midwest Surge. And staying with health, the CEO of Movember on their mission when it comes to men's physical and mental well-being. We begin, though, this week with the biggest story, and that is the presidential election. It's the cover story of this week's magazine, an election that had us all on edge. And as Bloomberg Business National Correspondent Josh Green reports, despite all the election uncertainty that we saw this week, one thing is for sure, and that is Trumpism is here to stay. Here's our conversation with Josh and Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. As we were working on this issue, we knew that there were, it was very likely that we would have multiple outcomes and we sort of prepped for every one of those outcomes. <laughs> and Josh was the secret weapon for, for one of them, which was sort of, you know, we, we might go to press and not knowing who the, the eventual winner is, Josh, and like, what story should we consider for that moment? And he was like, it, it was genius. He was like, by the way, no matter what outcome, Trumpism is here to stay. And actually, as we've seen the, the results um, come, come out, you know, hour after hour and day after day since, it actually has only become more and more true. Um, so, Josh, what, what did you see that led you to that thesis initially? Well, if you look at what binds Republican voters today, it's one thing and really one thing only, and that is their enthusiasm for Donald Trump. I mean, he has higher than a 90% approval rating consistently in polls. Uh, you know, all of the never-Trumper conservatives and moderate Democrats have either left the party, lost re-election, you know, and, and what's left is really loyal to Trump. Trump likes being in the limelight, wants to stay around, and there isn't any obvious Republican to shove him off the stage and reform the party and take it in a different direction. Uh, and I think that leads to the conclusion that uh, Trumpism and maybe even Trump himself are going to be the focal point of Republican politics going forward. What's also interesting in your stories, you really get into the suburban voter and the shifts that we continue to see among suburban voters. I mean, this is something the Republican Party, Josh, has to be thinking about. Yeah, it is. I mean, the story of, of U.S. politics over the last four years, in a lot of ways, has been the shift of uh, American suburbs across the country from being uh, white-collar Republican voters to being white-collar uh, Democratic voters. We saw inklings of that in 2016, even as Hillary lost. Um, she narrowed Democratic margins in Arizona and Texas um, to, to you know, formerly deeply red states in 2018. In the midterm elections, we saw this huge blue wave that swept out Republican incumbents uh, in districts around, uh, you know, Denver, Philadelphia, Northern Virginia, Northern New Jersey, Minneapolis, uh, even down in Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, and what we've seen, suburbs, uh, by and large, have stuck with Democrats. 
um, and and are happy to vote for Joe Biden. And I think going forward, that, that's that's a potentially existential problem for the Republican Party because you 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 ultimately need to win suburbs to hold on to the White House. And if you've driven away those voters in the way that that Trump's Republican Party have, um, you've got to figure out a way to get them back. Josh, you know, one of the other things that you have in, in your story is sort of the, the 2012 moment in the Republican Party where they did do an autopsy uh, and it ultimately led to a moment where it, it created an environment for Trump. Um, what would be the likelihood of an autopsy this time? You know, I think it'd be about zero. And, you know, the autopsy you're talking about in 2012, Mitt Romney lost and the party leaders got together and did a big deep dive study on what they needed to do um, to make the party competitive again. And their conclusions were we need to embrace immigration reform, uh, present a softer image to attract young people, LGBT, uh, minorities. And, and of course, as we now know, uh, the party went in exactly the opposite direction and nominated Donald Trump. That was back when there really wasn't a galvanizing singular personality, um, you know, exerting influence over the party. Well, now there is. So, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Trump has spent the last few days talking about voter fraud and the election being stolen from him and that so many Republican elected officials have been willing to echo those charges uh, you know, says to me that there doesn't even seem to be a willingness of Republican leaders who do understand what Trump has cost them uh, to try and embark on that kind of shift. What's happened to the traditional conservative Republicans that the party has been known for for so many law, you know, for so many years? The Lincoln Project Republicans, are they just gone? Do they come back? What happens? Well, you know, Many of them have left the party. Um, many of them have, have, have sort of broken off and and become public dissidents like the Lincoln Project folks. Um, but at the kind of like normal human, regular Joe level, a lot of those people have just become Biden voters. I mean, we can see that in the fact that it's already clear that Biden's going to win an enormous popular vote victory. And a lot of these, these you know, conservatives voted for moderate Democratic House candidates in 2018. Um, the problem the Lincoln Project has is that they don't really represent any big base of, repo- of, of voters left in the Republican Party. So they're not really speaking for anyone and probably aren't really going to have a lot of power to reshape the party going forward. That's Josh Green, Bloomberg Businessweek national correspondent. He is also author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Nationalist Uprising. That book you should definitely check out. Joining also, of course, Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Check out that full cover story in this week's issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. It is online, on newsstands, and always on the Bloomberg. Coming up, the election occupied a lot of our headspace this week. This as COVID-19 continued to reoccupy our world. An update on the pandemic is coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the highlights from our daily radio broadcast and podcast that included an update on COVID-19, which saw record increases in some parts of the globe, and as America's COVID-19 hotspots stuck with President Trump in the election. We got an update on the virus this week from Dr. Penny Wheeler. She's president and CEO at Alina Health. They've got 12 hospitals in the Minnesota area. We talked with her about the rise in the Midwest anxious times here as we see those case counts uh, go up and the hospitalizations go up as well. So, so uh, 
there's some anxiety about that for for certain. I am wondering what's the what are the conversations, Dr. Wheeler, that you're having? You know, I mentioned the Fran- uh, the number over in France. We're watching Europe. I think everybody in the U.S. is wondering, okay, is this where we are headed? France reporting a record of fifty two thousand five hundred eighteen new coronavirus cases. That's a big number, uh, and I wonder. Are you guys setting up or the, the facilities within your system and that you are involved with, are you guys anticipating another big surge or seeing it already? Yeah, we are. We are starting to see it already. I would say that, you know, in our, you know, in, in Minnesota, you know, you just mentioned, Carol, the surrounding states to Minnesota, all the yeah. Dakotas, Wisconsin and Iowa. Right. They've all had about a higher than 20% positivity rate. We've been creeping up and we've been seeing it around our border towns, too. But we're in about 8% proto, you know, positivity rate. And I can tell you our hospital takes care of about a quarter to a, a third of all um, those in Minnesota affected by the virus. Wow. And uh, we have doubled our census in COVID cases over the last two weeks. So it's coming quickly. Yeah. What, what's, what's, you know, I'm curious, you know, certainly in some of the conversations we've had with, within the medical community is that we didn't have the playbook back in March, right? We were just scrambling to figure it all out, get the equipment, get every, you know, the places, you know, get the systems, the necessary systems in place or the equipment in place. I do feel like we are smarter now and I hope so, but I do wonder what are you seeing or what have we learned from the past six to seven months, whether it's equipment, but also treating patients. Yeah, totally smarter, totally smarter in how we're treating patients and supporting other organ systems and knowing how to treat them. So fewer people who are in our intensive care units are actually succumbing to the disease and dying. So that is good, good news because we've learned more and we have more, more treatments and more um, support available. You know, we do have the right now, the stuff available. We increasing testing significantly. I'll tell you the biggest challenge for us mm-hmm. is uh, staffing. Mm. staffing this appropriately for the surge because, of course, some of our healthcare workers are also people who are getting ill or having family members that are ill. So a plea would be, boy, please do the distancing and masking. I know it's getting old and hard, but you're also protecting our healthcare workers significantly by doing so. You know, I think it's really interesting that you're saying that because um, I had a conversation actually with the CEO of Chipotle last week and I said, you know, same thing. You know, what has changed in your world, you know, since March and April in terms of the virus? And he said one of the most recent challenges is that our own employees are getting sick and it makes it harder to run the restaurant. And I do think this is going to be maybe the story for the second, third waves is you know, making sure that whether it's in healthcare, whatever industry, that we've got the necessary workers. And I know in healthcare, it's critical. Yeah, critical to just really the health of the community and our ability to treat people. So I worry that our capacity limitation will be healthy, available staff. So that will wh- be what limits it won't be on the it won't be on the PPE right now. It looks like it won't probably be on the testing. It will be on that. So what do you do? Can you reach out to, or what do you do? Do you reach out to your surrounding community, but they're also facing the same thing? Is right. there is there federal assistance that can help in, in this kind of situation? Not, you know, we're not looking to federal assistance, but we mm. are collaborating wonderfully well among, you know, the systems here so that we're trying to just balance things out. If somebody doesn't have ICU availability, who does? So we're not, you know, this is a time again for collaboration, not competitiveness. And then we're, we're continually working with each other. Like two of us are involved, for example, in vaccine trials mm-hmm. that are going on. So we're trying to look, be proactive about uh, 
you know, enrolling people in, in, in those trials as well. Yeah, I do wonder, you know, that, like I said, that this is going to be one of the, the main stories at this point. Um, I do wonder, too, that one of the things that we saw, certainly when we were in the midst of it here in the New York metro area, that there was really this great kind of sharing of equipment, sharing of knowledge. And, you know, what are you seeing, you know, as you deal with the entire, you know, healthcare community, or are you seeing that continued cooperation and assistance uh, around the country? We're seeing we're seeing the collaboration and cooperation here in spades. Mm-hmm. And while we can get, you can manufacture equipment, what you can't do is manufacture talented, compassionate um, staff. And so again, that's the that's the area that I think all of us are most concerned about. Dr. Um, Wheeler, one thing I wanted to know is, in terms of those getting the virus, are the demographics changing? Is it older, younger? Is it a mixture? I'm just curious what you guys are seeing. Yeah, the the demographics aren't changing in terms of those um, disproportionately affected who are Black, Indigenous, people of color. So that's not changing. We are seeing a slight shift to younger um, uh, people getting getting the virus, uh, um, but uh, otherwise the uh, profile and obviously the, most of the very severe illnesses and sadly the deaths occur in those who are uh, in the older age groups or those who have chronic illnesses. So that's staying the same. Yeah, so very, very similar. Listen, you know uh, better than most, it's all about you know, a vaccine, although when you, I, I, I'm curious how you feel about this. I feel like we continue to have conversations where more and more members of the medical community say, yep, a vaccine is very important, but also really important is wearing your mask, social distancing, doing all the, all the simple things that can really make a difference in terms of our fight against this uh, virus. Well, no question. Overemphasizing those over and over again. I heard one of your wonderful masks, uh, <laughs> uh, public service announcements, uh, while I was waiting. That's so important. The vaccine is important. It's, it's not an end all be all, though. We're involved in a, a Johnson and Johnson right. ensemble vaccine trial with enrollment of people. And we're actually participating, uh, you know, especially focused on populations of color, black, indigenous, and people of color as participants targeting specific zip codes. Uh, sometimes these, these studies are done too much on a, on a more of a, you know, a white um, population. Um, yeah. And this is disproportionately affecting uh, people of color. So we're actually targeting and asked to target our, our vaccine trial accordingly. And then I think, Carol, you said it just right. On the other side of things, we want a vaccine that can be trusted for sure and that has safety. And that trust is important to people being able to actually get the vaccine. But remember, even the even great flu vaccines aren't 100 percent, you know, successful. Right. Right. And then there's a proportion that won't doesn't take them. So, you know, I also don't want people to think that it's, uh, you know, we're flipping a switch and it's all over at that point. That's Dr. Penny Wheeler, president and CEO at Alina Health. Well, still to come, November, it's the month used to raise awareness of men's health issues such as prostate cancer, testicular cancer and men's suicide. We'll get more when we check in with Michelle Terry, CEO of Movember, about their growing mission. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. November, you know what it is. It's an annual event involving the growing of mustaches during the month of November to raise awareness of men's health issues. We're talking about prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and also men's suicide. Rejected with Michelle Terry, she's the CEO of Movember, to hear about their mission to make an impact more broadly when it comes to men's health. I caught up with her while she was in Melbourne, Australia. It's 
one thing to kind of understand deeply the sort of health crisis that's happened with COVID-19, and certainly that's the first thing to understand. But then when you take into account the economic crisis and and then actually, you know, you layer onto that just sort of the, the sort of racial justice reckoning that happened in this summer, the, right. the the world, our country, uh, you know, the globe is, is sort of dealing with these three factors. And when they have caused an immeasurable domino effect against uh, the support structures, the and just like the, the, the way people are, are what, what lifelines they have for all things, whether it's the health, whether it's uh, safety, whether it's their educational framework, whether it's food and the ability to kind of find uh, food resources, you know, from whether the, how much food they have in their house to even the kind of quality of food. And that's just, it's happening across the globe. And I think it's just, that is the thing about COVID-19 that it's, it, you know, we call it one thing, but it has so many tentacles and so many other effects. Well, I do wonder too, you know, Allison, these are, these are problems, whether it's education, whether it's safety, whether it's health, you know, or inequities in healthcare, or whether it's, you know, access to having a safety net so that if there you can't work for a couple months, you know, the rainy day fund, we found, you know, people don't, many Americans just don't have it. And now we're struggling, you know, to even just put food on the table or keep a roof over their heads. I do wonder, you guys have drawn, you know, put a lot of money towards this, and you've also drawn a lot of attention to it. What changes? What are the policies that we can think about that actually make a different you know, that change the trajectory of these people's lives? I think, you know, so from our from our standpoint, it's, you know, there there is a conversation to be had with policies, but there's also a, a conversation to be had about programs and the kind of programs that actually move the needle to not only support from an infrastructure perspective. So and the in the in the opportunity for role play project, you know, we're we're talking about trying to raise dollars to support the 14 million children in the U.S. that are currently not getting enough to eat. And that is, you know, and over 265 million people globally who are facing severe threats of hunger in 2020 for all the reasons that we've already discussed. And so in some ways, you know, there is a, as I mentioned, there is a a policy conversation, but there is also like a very straight up, you know, we need to get dollars to the right organizations who are on the ground that can actually sort of fulfill some of these basic needs that are happening today. And I think that first and foremost, and if you look at it from from the health, you know, getting getting access to healthcare, preventative healthcare, getting responses to what's obviously COVID nineteen, or even the myriad of other things that are out there. You know, flu season is coming up. That's even something that we need to be cognizant of. Um, and so, the kind of services that fight that, I think, on on food scarcity and food insecurity. You know, you can think of the ties into education and the and the structure that a lot of kids get some of their best meals within the school complex. If the right. school is not open and you have distributed learning, not only is there learning loss happening, but there is also kind of uh, access to food is, is cut off. And so, you know, I think from our standpoint, you know, we are this season, you know, we took a look at, you know, Red Nose Day's mission is to keep children safe, healthy, educated, and empowered. And we do that through a variety of programs through over 25 grantee partners, some of, of whom are the ones that you're familiar with, Feeding America, Boys and Girls Club of America. We raise public funds to then... Uh, make sure that those dollars go to these organizations that have these deeply rooted programs. This season in November and December is the holiday season. And I know what's going to happen around my holiday table. I'm sure some folks, Mm -hmm. your listeners are going to think about that too. 
there are going to be folks who are not going to have such security around that table. And hey, in fact, it's not just around the holiday dinner. It's, it's the, the, this whole every day. And I know we've been talking about it, but officially you guys launched the Full Plate Project Program. And just tell us a little bit more uh, about it. I know you've been hitting on it, um, Allison, but just what it, I mean, it encompasses a lot. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Um, you know, I think everyone knows the Red Nose Day as a campaign that activates in the spring, um, supporting uh, children. But honestly, with the unprecedented need, everything we've been talking about with COVID and that we're seeing around the country and around the world, we we thought it was the right time to utilize Red Nose Day. It's really powerful reach in, in our network with our core partners of Walgreens and NBC to activate the Full Plate Project and to raise awareness for food scarcity and hunger right now around the holiday time couldn't be couldn't be kind of more a prescient time to sort of understand like um, the real problem with hunger in, in in the U.S. and around the world. That's Michelle Terry, CEO of Movember, catching up with her from Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up, Conversational Commerce. It's coming to a virtual store near you. We'll hear more when we check in with the CEO of Live Person, Rob Lucasio. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, many retailers and brands pivoted to digital if they weren't already there because of the coronavirus. We talked about that with Rob Lucasio. He's founder, chairman, and CEO of Live Person. It's an AI-powered conversational platform for consumers to engage with companies. Rob reminded us it's not just about heading to a website. It's about virtual face-to-face shopping. Check it out. The retailers we're working with now on on two things. One is obviously that they've moving. Some people are moving more heavy to digital where they weren't in the past. They were just relying on stores. So we're powering like we we have one of the we just signed one of the world's largest jewelers. We got thousands of stores. Some are open, some are not. But they want to sell jewelry, and people want to ask questions, and they want to have these conversations with experts. So we're, we've powered AI experts to uh, you know to drive conversations consumers to sell them diamond rings and things like that. And then now also in the store is that people are coming in the stores where they're open, but they want to be socially distanced and they want to look at things, but they don't want a salesperson in their face. So we now have created that next to the products, there's a little QR code. You take your phone out, you hover it over the QR code, and then you start messaging an automation or a virtual agent, someone who's not there, who's someplace else, who will, ask, who will answer questions about jewelry and things like that, and then stay connected to you after you buy to make sure everything's okay. So it's opened up a, a, a different way to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the holiday season, we're seeing a lot of demand right now because I think most people are going to be buying online. And, uh, but the, the, the retailers want to create the special connection that they would in a store with a human they want to create those those moments, those conversations, but do it digitally. And that's where we're powering over messaging with AI. You know, this certainly concurs with, we caught up with Brian Duffy, CEO of Watches of Switzerland Group uh, a few weeks ago. And, and he said, you know, they already had a, a pretty significant digital presence, but, you know, it went from beyond just checking out the website to actually doing Zoom or, you know, some other, com- you know, call, virtual call on a platform with a customer, you know, where they could have some face-to-face interaction. Yeah, I mean, we, we actually launched a platform called Hey Experts. It just launched about two months ago, and it's for experts like Pilates instructors and teachers and all that to get online and, and use um, video like Zoom and stuff like this, 
but it enables them to sort of manage the, their customers so it handles scheduling and payments and all of that. And, um, and we're having great successes with that right now because all of that got moved. I remember I just saw a, like a Pilates instructor mm-hmm. uh, in Israel shut her, shut her studio down. She joined the platform. She brought seven other instructors with her. And now they're giving 100% of their lessons online, and we're powering that. So, so we, we talk about conversational commerce. It's about you know, these live interactions. It, there's these scenarios where it's not good enough to just show up at a website and you know, put something in a shopping cart and never ask a question. Most high-valued products and services, people want to ask questions, and we power those, and we power it with AI. Part of that is automating those conversations. Yeah, it's you know, and I always feel like we've had chats with certain things, but you're right, like, especially when it comes to high end, and the ability to really, you know, potentially get somebody a face, right, you're more inclined to maybe make that purchase as a result. Yeah, and I, and I think what happened was, and we, we've seen this, is that a lot of people had websites, even small businesses yeah. have websites, but when their stores were shut down, they had no way to, to connect with those consumers who normally come in the stores. Like they didn't have a, a mailing list. They didn't have their phone numbers, you know, right. like they, they may have some emails. So what we found is that they started to think about, I should have been messaging with them. I should have had that the same way I'm messaging my friends and family. I should be doing that right. with my customers and I need a system to do it. And I would have stayed connected. Like I, in New yeah. York, you know, that's where I live. I, we'd see these pictures, uh, right. dial this phone number. I'm not in the store, but you can come here and I'll come over and run and, Tell you something, right? I heard one of our customers, Lowe's. You know, we're we're doing a lot of great things with them. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're 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 doing awesome right now, and we're powering a lot of that commerce uh, through conversational commerce. Uh, the one of our largest customers. So you know, their success, you can see it. They've had just a tremendous amount of obviously shift to digital, and we're doing a lot of selling on that website with them, which is driving our growth rates. You know, we had an amazing quarter. Uh, a lot of this, you know, is dr- driven by what's happened with COVID and the shift from retail. And, and so it, they just came on my mind because I heard the commercial about them. That's okay. No, you know, what's interesting that you say that, Lowe's, because I was actually looking at, um, like, buying some paint online. And just there's a bunch of different companies. And it's amazing. And I'm assuming when you talk AI, too, it's some of those chats that just, you know, they're like, answer these questions. And you kind of started going back and forth. And you and you feel like, you know, okay, I'm, I, I feel like I'm in the store almost, you know, talking with someone to figure out what I want and what I need. I mean, we are increasingly moving towards that as a consumer. Yeah. And I mean, there's actually uh, a, a really good story there. We have a uh, one automation called uh, Grillmaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, this AI has a personality and uh he basically sells you grills and answers questions about grills and they'll say things like, Do you want to cook steaks on it? Do you wanna do you want to do things more like fish? Do you like to and and it's really interesting and, and that was created by by agents who were taking chats. So these were contact center agents who were taking chats and they've now elevated and they've become conversational designers for AI. They've like doubled their salary. So there's a whole group of people out there that are handling voice calls and doing this very old job and, and they can get into the AI game. And once again, at Lowe's, we have these, we have, as you saw, we have many automations running on their, on their website right. and, and they're, but, but they're created by humans. They're created by people who normally were selling on the website by chat. 
Right. It feels pretty normal or almost natural, if you will. Hey, I got to ask you, just to take a step away for a second, uh, earnings. I mean, you guys are up 45% this year. What has business been like? How busy have you guys been because, amid the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, we, we grew 26% uh, this quarter. We grew 29% last quarter. Um, we hit the rule of 40. I mean, it, it's been a pretty great year for us. And it, the pandemic what it did first was shut down physical contact centers and, and the agents were sent home. And, you know, it's just very hard to like route a voice call to someone's home. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, so what happened was our customers, these are the biggest brands in the world, telcos and retailers. They said, look, we want to automate that. We should have done it a long time ago and now we have to do it. And that's what's been driving the tremendous growth in our business. And then, then we add to that the retail things we talked about. Insurance is coming on big. And even, you know, we, we signed last year uh, a bunch of airlines like Delta Airlines and hotels. We were very focused on hospitality. And, and they've doubled down now. They're like, even though their business is in a, is a majorly impacted and they're in a lull, they're now retooling their businesses using our technology because when they come through this, they don't want to do it the same way they did it. They wanted that when you're on your way to an airport – uh, and your flight's delayed, you get a message. But not only do you get a message, you can then uh, communicate with information to rebook. When you arrive in the airport, they can give you information. When you're on the plane, they can stay connected with you. Maybe you want to book a vacation a month later. They want to be connected to you. So they envision this connected experience that doesn't exist today. And they're, and they're, going, they're doubling down on using technology like ours to do that. We, you know, There's the shift from voice to messaging to AI. That's the stuff we talked about. But the, the bigger shift is the shift from e-commerce uh, to conversational commerce. And if you can envision a world where you're just you're communicating with a machine, not going to a search, searching on Google, hitting a landing page of a website, scrambling around, looking around, maybe you have to then pick up the phone and call a contact center because of something that you're, happened on the website or you need more information. Imagine just saying, you know, I, I'm looking for, uh, to buy a car with the machine. Okay, great. What, what, what do you want a family for your family? Is it for your single? I want this type of car. Great. And it just helps you through it without going from search to landing page, to phone call, to email, outbound email marketing. You keep it in a single conversation all the way through. Mm-hmm. And that's going to happen. Like what we're trying to build, have you ever seen the movie her? Yeah. We're trying to build that type of AI for all of our customers, like that loving, caring AI. And we're going to get there. And and, we're, and 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 it will replace e-commerce. We will not be going to websites. Like my kids won't be going to a website and scrounging around and putting something in a shopping cart. They'll just talk to a machine and get things done. It's really kind of wild, right? It's just, it's really the next step, if you will. Hey, listen, while we have you, um, I did want to ask you about, you run an organization called Feeding New York City, and you deliver thousands of Thanksgiving meals to families in each, uh, each year. I know we talked about um, your work here in that area last time you were on. What are you guys seeing in terms of demand among the families in New York? You know, we're... It, we, we have major, major problems. I mean, we've been delivering turkeys uh, since ni- after 9-11, and mm-hmm. we're going to feed 5,000 families this year. So we're, we're, we're touching in the metro area, you know, all the families, about 8,000, a little over 8,000 families in the shelters of New York City. There are so many people who are hurting, you know, who have lost their jobs, and it's 
the demand for even what we're doing with turkeys is is beyond what I've ever seen in the 20 years of us doing this. Well, making sure people have food on the table, so important, of course, this holiday season. That's Rob Lacasio, founder, chairman, and CEO of Live Person. He's really impacting our world in so many ways. We're going to talk more about food insecurity. That's going to happen later on in our broadcast. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in our next hour, the biggest legal battle of the pandemic will decide if insurance pays. That story in the magazine. Heading to the Hamptons, we'll have a real estate check. Also, Comic Relief's mission to stop food insecurity in our world, and comic Paul Reiser on the talk show host that inspired him and his streaming series. That's coming up on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, highlights from our daily radio show, including stories in the magazine and some of our favorite interviews. And that included one with Comic Relief U.S. CEO Allison Moore tackling the really important issue of food insecurity. We also check in with comedian, actor, writer, and author Paul Reiser. He was back on bringing his series, Here's Johnny. First up, a story in the magazine. We've talked about this with several business owners, many in the restaurant space, but it really affects all kinds of and all sizes of businesses. It's about how the big insurance companies have, by and large, refused to pay business interruption claims and the lawyer that's leading the charge against them. Bloomberg News legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany talked with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and me about it. When David came to us with this uh, pitch, I think he really just immediately got our attention because yeah. we're about to see uh, a case brought to a court by an attorney in New Orleans. And it, it is basically the shot across the bow. And I think all eyes are going to be on it because it will be sort of, it's basically business versus insurance. And there's probably billions of dollars in the sway in terms of how this one um, sways effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he happens to be an incredibly colorful character as well. <laughs> so that made the, the story that much more enjoyable to read. It's a movie David, in the making, I have to say. <laughs> exactly. D- David, who is this lawyer that we're talking about? He's a plaintiff lawyer in New Orleans named John Hotelling, um, who's basically been, been suing insurance companies after major disasters since... Hurricane Katrina. So he has a track record of representing businesses in coverage disputes. And this dispute over business interruption insurance is sort of the latest iteration of that. And how much money could we potentially uh, be looking at here? Like what, what what's involved in this particular case? And then what cases um, to come? So the amount of money in this particular case in New Orleans isn't entirely clear yet because the restaurant that he's representing hasn't actually filed a claim. Um, They're preemptively suing to kind of establish the legal precedent that insurers should be on the hook for uh, damage caused by the pandemic. Um, But if you you know, broaden this out to all the businesses across the country that have business interruption insurance and are suing to force their insurers to pay up. One industry estimate puts it at between $52 billion and $223 billion a month that uh, insurers would have to pay to cover the damage caused by the pandemic. And, and the argument that the insurance industry is making is that this would essentially wipe out their reserves. It's just not feasible for them to cover this many claims. 
I have to say, I mean, this kind of gets to like, why do you have insurance, right? And and this whole idea of unprecedented when it comes to acts of either natural disasters or, you know, just unexplained events. And I feel like that's going to be talked about a lot, David, when it comes to these cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, the other argument that, that the insurers keep making is that this is totally unprecedented because mm-hmm. we've had catastrophes in the past, but they're they're isolated to a certain geographic region. There's a there's a hurricane in New Orleans which destroys businesses there, but at least it only affects you know one city or or a few cities. Um, whereas the pandemic is like a hurricane happening in every city in the country at the same time, and every business in the country is disrupted in a major way and. It's just not possible for the insurers to respond. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, the pandemic took most parts of American society by surprise, but actually the insurance companies have been have anticipated this moment for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. After, after SARS, um, a few of the insurance companies were forced to make big payouts to companies in China that had to shut down um, during, during what, well, you know, SARS was sort of raging through Asia in the early 2000s. Um, and after that, Insurance companies inserted language in some of these policies that seems to exclude damage caused by a virus from coverage. Mm-hmm. And part of the legal battle is whether that language should actually apply to the pandemic. Um, there are also policies that don't include that sort of language. So the insurance companies have been have been thinking about this for a while. So they're not they're not entirely you know unprepared as this kind of legal battle ramps up. Okay, David, can we talk about the Lambos? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I said this guy was colorful, and, and literally he has colorful cars. Um, what, what is with the Lamborghinis? So John Hotelling is a, is, a, is a big luxury car enthusiast. He has an extensive collection of Ferraris and Lamborghinis. He, uh, he told me that, that as a child growing up in New Orleans, he had a, a catalog, a kind of Lamborghini catalog or buyer's guide that he would flip through as a kid, sort of fantasizing about cars that he might be able to afford one day. And he kept this catalog. And when he actually became really wealthy um, after you know winning tons of big cases in the early 2000s, you know, he went through this catalog and decided that he would buy every single model of Lamborghini advertised in it. And that was 17 Lamborghinis. And so he's got those parked at a garage near his mansion in, in New Orleans, right, right near the, this famous garden district. Um, and, you know, he's added to it over the years. He races luxury cars. He races them in a, in a sort of, in a big race in Italy every year. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty vast and, and impressive collection of luxury vehicles. He's, he's a, he's a real person and he's really passionate about, about this cause. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's not somebody who just showed up on the scene and started suing insurance companies because he thought that this was, you know, this was like the biggest biggest chance to make money off the pandemic or something like that. Um, he's he's been kind of an advocate on behalf of insurance policyholders since Katrina, which happened in his in his hometown. Um, he's really knowledgeable about these issues. That plaintiff's lawyer behind it all, an interesting individual. Read more about him in Bloomberg News legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany's story. It's in the magazine. That was David with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. While many businesses are struggling during the pandemic, a lot of real estate is doing well. We check in with the president of Bespoke Real Estate. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. One real estate story caught our attention this week. It was on the Bloomberg. It's about how as workers stay home and office buildings sit vacant, some see a new role for New York City's business district as a site for affordable housing. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we continue to hear about the flight from New York City, yep, to the suburbs, but also to upscale secondary markets. We got some insight on that from Cody Vachinsky, founding partner and president of Bespoke Real Estate. Simply put, it's pretty busy in the Hamptons. My world has been frenetic, uh, filled with good blessing, filled with a lot of interesting conversation. Uh, so we are based primarily in the Hamptons, and we work in markets such as New York City and South Florida, and we are advisors to a lot of these what I would call sub-markets, secondary markets all over the country. So as you were alluding to, uh, many of them have benefited uh, and seen an exodus out of urban areas like they've never seen before. So uh, for several people in, in the industry, the residential industry, it's been a gangbusters year. Um, so we are on the tail end of a summer season heading into more of a primary season. Well, talk to me about those secondary markets. It's interesting that you say that. I I hosted a, a panel for Milken this year, a virtual panel, obviously, but it was global real estate. So it was someone in uh, the UK, folks in the US, someone in China, um, and just what was going on. And we talked a lot about the secondary and tertiary markets and that how we're continuing to see a trend that was already happening, but we saw it pick up a lot of momentum because of COVID-19. What are you seeing on that front? Completely right. Uh, I think uh, you know the Hamptons is a prime example. Palm Beach, uh, Miami's an odd duck because it's primary for a lot of people, but secondary, tertiary for many. Uh, I, I think as people take a hard look at their lives and start to reprogram how they live, uh, where they want to raise their children, where the best uh, portfolio allocation and the potential for upside will be. You know, there's a lot of balls up in the air. So with uh, safety, I think, is the primary driver of where to you know, place the liquidity uh, to the capital. So for me, I think that a lot of these markets are, are really on the upward trend of the curve. I think the larger question will be is what does two to three years look like as inventory is absorbed? Uh, and as the dust sort of settles on new data points and a new level of pricing and uh, what that's going to mean in the overarching uh, evolution of these micro markets. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of this, right? I, I think we're all just trying to figure out, okay, nobody wants to be, not nobody, but a lot of people don't want to be in New York City right now or any major city where they're worried about the virus or where cases are starting to rise again, right? So they've just either rented a house, bought a house. But I do wonder if you buy a house, you know, that's not something you necessarily buy a house in Greenwich and then come back in three years, or do you? I think it depends on who you're speaking with. Uh, I think now is an opportunity uh, for a lot of people, you know, they're foreshadowing where they're going to be and how they're going to live. Uh, I think if you're specifically speaking about the ultra high net worth individual or the high net worth individual, you know, they have more flexibility in terms of where they want to be and and how they want to live. And in good markets and bad markets, I think they buy based on a necessity um, even though ultra-luxury real estate doesn't operate on necessity, it operates purely on desire and function, uh, but B, opportunity. You know, so I, I think that they can always come back to the city or they can always sell their you know, expensive Greenwich home to the right person because the microcosm is relatively finite. 
know, there's only so many people who play in that segment of the market. So it, it's really an acute conversation. It's mm. hard to paint with a broad brush other than what we're seeing in terms of the exodus, so to speak, and people looking at other markets where they have not typically been operating in or living in, uh, really taking it on uh, to learn more about the market, invest into that market, and see if it's a place that they can call home for an extended period of time. Um, Cody, one thing I do want to ask you, what, what are the Hamptons like right now? Uh, I'm, I'm looking at my office window, uh, and we use a barometer of traffic, and it is back-to-back, and it has been. It's been a particularly busy off-season. Yeah. I think that term is be, being uh, diluted. As we, as we see it unfold in front of our eyes, people are, are living here full-time and you know, reverse commuting back to the city and other places. So uh, it, it's busy. And you know we have offices down in South Florida, same concept. A lot of our folks uh, who are in sort of the golden triangle uh, of the Northeast, South Florida, and somewhere in the you know, Midwest, Colorado, all those markets are seeing people spend more time you know, there in, quote-unquote, the off-seasons. Yeah, it is interesting. We talked with someone, I think it was up in uh, Aspen, and the same thing that they said, you know, and they're in the hospitality industry, and they said, we were doing actually well, because this is where people were going, um, certainly over the summer months uh, before, you know, some concerns about some some newer spikes here. So, you know, what do you think, I mean, you understand the property market, and I do wonder, you know, we just did a story uh, in the break a little bit about what's happening in maybe some of the Midtown Manhattan offices, and I know you're in, in residential, um, but I do wonder what are the longer term trends that you think will maybe stay with us or longer term, maybe maybe it's only longer term for three to five years and then it changes again. I just do wonder when you look at, at what's been going on, what stays with us? Um, it's a great question. I don't think anyone has a crystal ball. Mm. Um, bespoke, we are specialists. Um, our, our model is we only list properties that are 10 million and above uh, we don't have any independent agents. We operate more as a, a private equity firm mm-hmm. you know, with specialists. So we have the unique perspective of talking uh, with people who are of a, of a certain strata in terms of the real estate and what their intentions are. And I think people are ultimately looking at time uh, a little bit more critically. Um, and those that have the luxury to you know, reprogram where they work from uh, you know, how, how much they can spend at home versus going to an office. I think COVID gave everybody a little bit of a gut check as to the reality of what they can and cannot do. And it, it sort of dissipated these false pretenses that you had to run and rush to an office. Um, you know, it, it forced people to work from home and spend more time with their family and just think about time in a more critical fashion. So um, I think from my vantage point, you're going to get a, a shift in people's desire to be home and be with their family uh, and also at the same time a yearning to get back towards socialization and being in a restaurant and being with friends somewhere that you didn't feel like there was a potential risk. So uh, I think you have two ships in the night kind of passing in different directions, both yeah. of equal importance. That's Cody Vichinsky, founding partner and president of Bespoke Real Estate, really talking about the changing and constantly shifting priorities of our world. And of course, all of it impacted by the pandemic, really making all of us rethink everything in our world. Well, something the pandemic has also impacted big time, and that is the ability of Americans to put food on their tables. We'll hear from Comic Relief U.S. CEO Allison Moore on the growing hunger crisis in America. This is Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Our final half hour, common thread of comedy, but perhaps not what you might be thinking. Shortly, we're going to check in with comic, actor, author, writer, Paul Reiser, who pays homage to the comedian who inspired so many. We're talking about Johnny Carson. First up, though, to the organization behind Red Nose Day. They've raised $200 million to help over 25 million children globally. It's all about ending child poverty. Comic Relief is the organization behind it all. Allison Moore is a former chief revenue officer at SoundCloud. She's currently CEO of Comic Relief U.S., she reminds us that the multiple crises of our times has exacerbated the problem of food insecurity. It's one thing to kind of understand deeply the sort of health crisis that's happened with COVID-19, and certainly that's the first thing to understand. But then when you take into account the economic crisis and and then actually, you know, you layer onto that just sort of the, the sort of racial justice reckoning that happened in this summer, the, right. the the world, our country, uh, you know, the globe is, is sort of dealing with these three factors. And when they have caused an immeasurable domino effect against uh, the support structures, the and just like the the, the way people are are what, what lifelines they have for all things, whether it's the health, whether it's uh, safety, whether it's their educational framework, whether it's food and the ability to kind of find. Uh, food resources, you know, from whether the, how much food they have in their house to even the kind of quality of food. And it's just, it's happening across the globe. And I think it's just, that is the thing about COVID-19 that it's, it, you know, we call it one thing, but it has so many tentacles and so many other effects. Well, I do wonder too, you know, Allison, these are, these are problems, whether it's education, whether it's safety, whether it's health, you know, or inequities in healthcare, or whether it's, you know, access to having a safety net so that if there you can't work for a couple months, you know, the rainy day fund, we found, you know, people don't, many Americans just don't have it. And now we're struggling, you know, to even just put food on the table or keep a roof over their heads. I do wonder, you guys have drawn, you know, put a lot of money towards this, and you've also drawn a lot of attention to it. What changes? What are the policies that we can think about that actually make a different you know, that change the trajectory of these people's lives? I think, you know, so from our from our standpoint, it's, you know, there there is a conversation to be had with policies, but there's also a, a conversation to be had about programs and the kind of programs that actually move the needle to not only support from an infrastructure perspective, so and the and the in the opportunity for pro play project, you know, we're, we're talking about trying to raise dollars to support the 14 million children in the U S that are currently not getting enough to eat. And that is, you know, and over 265 million people globally who are facing severe threats of hunger in 2020 for all the reasons that we've already discussed. And so in some ways, you know, there is a, as I mentioned, there is a, a policy conversation, but there is also like a very straight up, you know, we need to get dollars to the right organizations who are on the ground that can actually sort of fulfill some of these basic needs right. that are happening today. And I think that first and foremost, and if you look at it from from the health, you know, getting getting access to healthcare, preventative healthcare, getting responses to what's obviously COVID-19 or even the myriad of other things that are out there. You know, flu season is coming up. That's even something that we need to be cognizant of. Um, and so the kind of services that fight that, I think on, on food, scarcity and food insecurity, you know, you can think of the ties into education and the and the structure that a lot of kids get some of their best meals within the school complex. If the right. school is not open, 
and you have distributed learning, not only is there learning loss happening, but there is also kind of uh, access to food is, is cut off. And so, you know, I think from our standpoint, you know, we are this season, you know, we took a look at, you know, Red Nose Day's mission is to keep children safe, healthy, educated, and empowered. And we do that through a variety of programs through over 25 grantee partners, some of, of whom are the ones that you're familiar with, Feeding America, Boys and Girls Club of America. We raise public funds to then uh, make sure that those dollars go to these organizations that have these deeply rooted programs. This season in November and December is the holiday season. And I right. know what's going to happen around my holiday table. I'm sure some folks, mm-hmm. your listeners, are going to think about that, too. There are going to be folks who are not going to have such security around that table. Hey. And, in fact, it's not just around the holiday dinner. It's it's, it's uh, this whole every day. And I know we've been talking about it, but officially you guys launched the Full Plate Project Program. And just tell us a little bit more uh, about it. I know you've been hitting on it, um, Allison, but just what it, I mean, it encompasses a lot. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Um, you know, I think everyone knows the Red Nose Day as a campaign that activates in the spring, um, supporting uh, children. But honestly, with the unprecedented need, everything we've been talking about with COVID and that we're seeing around the country and around the world, we we thought it was the right time. That's Allison Moore, CEO of Comic Relief U.S. And again, reminding us about existing problems that were out there uh, before COVID-19, but again, exacerbated because of the coronavirus. And also that important concept of a layering of problems, whether it's a health crisis, whether it's racial injustices, the inequities that are out there, and really what Comic Relief is doing to really improve them and make them better for so many Americans in our country. Well, straight ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, comedian, actor, writer, and author Paul Reiser is back with us, hearkening back to another time with his series, Here's Johnny. That's coming up on Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up this week with some lighter fare. I feel like you could all use it. It's been a jam-packed news week, that's for sure. What we did is we checked in once again with comedian, actor, writer, and author Paul Reiser. He created a series. It's now streaming on Peacock, and it really taps into the childhoods of so many. It takes us back to a time when, if you can remember this, three networks dominated television, network television. And it's also a time when some 50 million viewers tuned in to watch one late-night talk show host, and comedian. Check it out. This is an interesting little journey. Uh, I created with a buddy of mine, my friend David Simon, we created a show called There's Johnny, which is uh, debuting on on Sunday uh, on Peacock. And it's a weird thing. Well, I'll tell you about the show, but it's weird because it's it's not quite debuting. It was on another platform. Right. Uh, We we did it two years ago, and it was on very quietly, so to not disturb anybody. It was not particularly (laughs) promoted. And, hey, Paul, just uh, a hint. Don't do that. Yeah. You want to disturb people. You want to make sure they know I about know. it. I <laughs> know. No, that wasn't my decision. They decided they didn't want to bother anybody. But, um, you know, I had always thought that once a show was on streaming, well, let's just be there and people will get to it whenever. It's always there. And then I found out uh, a few months ago, I go, hey, there's Johnny is no longer up. I went, well, it just because they had apparently a two year contract or something, ah. uh, uh, deal. So anyway, so it sort of fell into the ether. It was nowhere. And. It was this summer, Peacock was launching, and I said, well, this is a show that if any show belongs on Peacock, this is it. It takes place, There's Johnny takes place uh, in 1972, behind the scenes of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. So literally, the Peacock 
is in our opening credits. It takes place. It's, it's in NBC shot in NBC hall, NBC hallways and stuff. And uh, extra icing on the cake that at, since we shot this two years ago, uh, one of our wonderful, wonderful stars, Jane Levy, has gone on to become a big star for an NBC show called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Right. So we called the people at Peacock. We said, you know, you have this wonderful star, Jane Levy. She is also in this show. I'll bet you people would like to see it. Mm-hmm. And luckily they went, yes, they would. So they're putting on, which, uh, you know, it's one of these, sometimes when a shows die, they just die. But this was so good that I, yeah. it felt it was worth the extra effort to fight for it. I have to say, in our planning meeting, we were talking about and that you were going to come on and talk about it. And we all watched the trailer and, and, and caught some clips of it. And we all were like, this is really good. I mean, first of all, it takes us back to the 70s, which was such a kind of iconic era. There was so much going on. But it's also, and you, you must have loved working on it as a comedian. I mean, Johnny Carson mm. is, you know, kind of the gold standard in terms of, you know, what we thought about when it came to comedy or, or really yeah, created for, the world that we live in today. Yeah, very, very much. And I'm all, you know, in my class of comedians, my generation, we mm-hmm. that was the goal, to get on Johnny. And for all of us, getting on that first time was like the huge reward. And it was also the currency that everybody else could understand. So, you know, your parents went, I guess my son's not a total loser. Because we just thought he's staying up late and making no money, but he was on the Tonight Show and Johnny liked him, so he must be okay. But what we did, is a very, you're right, it was a very interesting time. 72 was, mm-hmm. first of all, it was just when Johnny Carson moved the show from New York out to Burbank and it took on it's almost like it became in color then yeah. you know it, it suddenly yeah. took on a new life and it also coincided with the beginning of the comedy scene and the comedy clubs the com- the comedy store in the west coast and what we did uh, and I, you know it's really kind of unique and we have we partnered with Carson Entertainment his company mm-hmm. um, for the rights to use the clips we have so we have little so clips great. of episodes of his of actual broadcasts that are in our show as part of our show because it's, we're behind the scenes and they're putting us so when you see oh, we need to get George Collin and there's right. George Collin and there's Johnny and so for me you're, it was absolutely a treat to go into the vault we had this wonderful exclusive access to the vault and I would say well let's just pick out my favorites so let's go get George Collin <laughs> boom Albert Brooks and Steve Martin and it's an interesting thing because for uh, people of a certain age who remember Johnny fondly, it's a lovely way to revisit and see pieces yeah. of the show. But it really ultimately has nothing to do with the show because it's really about this 18-year-old kid right. who lands you know, through some silly accident, ends up working there, and he meets this 25-year-old wonderful Jane Levy who just makes his head explode because well, she's unlike anybody he's ever met. I have to say, Paul, what's also kind of neat is you do dig back into the 70s, uh, the fashion, mm. the sexism, <laughs> you know, women not paid the same as men. Like, you, you have some, you really get into it. Yeah, you know, it, it was... It, it's hard. It, so many things were so different. I mean, it's 40 yeah. or 50 years ago, but almost 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, there's a great scene where Jane Levy goes into uh, our boss. With Tony, Tony Danza right. is the only guy who plays a, an actual person. He plays uh, Johnny Carson's producer, Freddie de Cordova, and he's brilliant at it. Anyway, but there's a scene where she goes in and she complains that she just found out that her her colleague, who's a, a male, gets the uh, has the exact same job but makes twice as much, and it doesn't seem fair. And you see, Tony goes, "It's not what fair. What do you mean?" And it, it, Some things point, never change, was, Paul. I'm just going to say it never changes. But it was at that moment, it was yeah. so foreign. It's like I don't right. even understand the question. Why would it be fair? <laughs> like, let's start there. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and uh, so, yeah, and it was Vietnam, and our lead character right. is this young 18-year-old whose brother is this all-American kid who goes to Vietnam, and uh, it doesn't go well. So the, it, it impacts everything, and, and the part of the fun of the show was taking this really sweet, innocent kid, played by uh, Ian Nelson, mm-hmm. he's this 18-year-old kid fresh off a farm, and through a uh, sort of knuckle-headed uh, misunderstanding, ends up working at the Tonight Show. So for him to see suddenly Hollywood and sex, drugs, rock and roll, and women who women who see therapists and and women who are just you know you know chew chew up men for for fun, um, it's a whole new world. So we get to enter this beautiful complex world through his uh, innocent eyes, which was a lot of fun to write. Listen, what were your memories of your first time on Johnny Carson? I, you know, I did it, I did it many times, but the first time I did it was, um, it was a moment that we had all planned for, you know, or dreamed of, we didn't plan for it, but we worked towards it. So it was an interesting, uh, weird uh, feeling because you got there and suddenly it didn't feel surprising. It felt like, oh, okay, I have, (laughs) I have envisioned this so many times. Right. Um, But it was, it was. It was certainly a turning point for every comic. Your first time on Johnny is such an accomplishment. And and for me, I don't remember ever thinking of anything beyond that. Like, that was as far as I could picture down the road of whatever success might look like. Get on the Carson show and then, yeah, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, Johnny was such a big part of our lives as comics. But as America, just for America, he was in our living rooms, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in our bedrooms at 1130 at night for 30 years in a way that as great as Jimmy and Jimmy and, and, and Steve and, and Conan are, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't the same. He, Johnny was singular. He sat on that throne by himself. And, uh, he, and we also, it was... When in the very beginning, when you couldn't record it, right. you had to stay up, right? So it became right. it became part of your life, and and like and you remembered it. So when we were doing this show, there's Johnny, and I was pulling up clips of George Carlin and Albert Brooks. So I remembered them, even though I hadn't seen them in forty, fifty years, whatever. I was going, I remember this because I stayed up late, and right. I, it was important to me. So uh, it was really a different time in culture, just in how people watched uh, television and how we related to the people and the stars and there was a reason johnny was on top for 30 years he was singularly yeah. uh, talented well it's interesting that you say that too like i mean it's an era where there were three networks essentially right three major right. networks and you were you know you watched one or the other i was just quick googling and i think they said at the, at the peak he had something like 50 million viewers like to yeah. get your head around that you know? <laughs> yes. and everybody the next morning would talk about what johnny talked about yeah and he also uh, you know he had so many skills and mm-hmm. Attributes, and he was a host, a, a really a, a genuine host in a way that it seems almost antiquated now. Yeah. And he also he he avoided politics. You know, he was very comfortable. He straddled he straddled the world in a great way. I mean, he was hip. The you know hip people liked him, and very conventional, rural. You know, he was he was Nebraska, and he was also New York. He was, right. um, and you never knew his politics. We even have an episode where somebody does you know slips in a, an anti Nixon joke, and the producer gets incensed and said, "How dare you? You know you don't know Johnny. Johnny, you have any idea what Johnny Carson actually thinks? No, wow. that's right because he doesn't tell you, and it's none of but nobody's business. And he that was part of his appeal that everybody came to the tent. Um, he would poke fun at you know, a Democrat, mm-hmm. the Republicans, but gently. It was right. never really um, 
pointed. And he kind of did, you know, he kind of did put you to bed every night. You, took, yeah. you know, whether right. you were watching or just had it on in the background, Johnny was how you rounded off your day and the world seemed a little better and you had a couple of jokes to start your morning. You remember Johnny's joke last night? And, right, uh, exactly. It was a big deal. It was well, a big deal. So I'm thrilled the show is getting a second life. Yeah, great to have another shot, right? Especially at a time when all of us are looking for things to watch. We need content. That, of course, was comedian, actor, writer, and author Paul Reiser on his series, There's Johnny, now streaming on Peacock. Check out, too, our full conversation. It's on our podcast feed. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in daily to Bloomberg Business Week, Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also hear more of our Bloomberg Business Week conversations. Download them at Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch us on YouTube. Just search on Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. This week, it's with Michelle Terry. She's the CEO of Movember. They are on a widespread mission to really make an impact on men's health. We're talking about both their physical health and also their mental well-being. So check out her efforts there. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now, online, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Have a safe weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg.